It is uh, it's good for me to, to be back up here with you guys. I was uh, gone away on vacation two weeks ago, and then last Sunday we had a little bit of a different service, and, and Craig was leading our devotion last week, and so it's good, to, it's good to be back with you, even though I was here last week, it's good to be back up sharing with you um, from the Word. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up there. If you don't, there should be one close by you under the seats, and we're also going to have the Word up on the screen this morning. But um, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series in Romans this morning, and we're starting a new chapter, and as we start a new chapter, it's not always the case, but it's the case today that as we start this chapter, there's a significant transition in the book. And so sometimes uh, we know that the chapters and verses were not, you know, wholly inspired by God, that the words themselves are, but the, the verses and the chapters were all put in later. So we don't want to get too much into new chapter, new theme, but sometimes it does work that way. And so in chapter 6, we see a significant kind of change. And so if you've been with us at all up to this point in our series, uh, I guess the first, I don't know, what are we all now, first 23 sermons in, in, uh, in Romans, Paul, through chapters 1 through 5, has been primarily focusing on the salvation and justification doctrine. So he's been looking at salvation and justification and trying to explain the gospel in such a way to make those doctrines make sense. And, and what that basically is, it's, it's God's incredible grace to send his only son Jesus into the world, take on the sin of the world, although he himself had no sin, and then sacrifice himself on the cross to pay the ultimate penalty for my sin and for your sin. And we call that, the, that part of that is the justification, salvation. We've kind of looked at that in depth over the last two or three or more months. But as we get into chapter 6 today, Paul is making a significant shift and he's going to be focused, instead of salvation and justification, a significant shift to the sanctification process, the process of growth in the life of a believer. So you might have been here through the first 23 parts or some of the first 23 parts, and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm familiar with this. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus. I, I'm familiar with salvation. I'm familiar with justification. It, I, I get all that. I've, I've learned some stuff, but it all kind of seems familiar, and I, and I hope it it does and has served as a review for you. But as we come to today, I want you to know from this point forward in, in Romans, from 6 really to, to 16, but especially 6, 7, 8, kind of going forward, that the focus shifts to the life of a believer. So if you've been in here and you're like, yeah, I, I know Christ and I'm walking with Christ. And so this verse may not necessarily, while it applies to me, it may not yeah, be something new. I would tell you that as we come to this the shift today that these verses are written specifically to believers and for believers, okay? So please keep that in mind as we're going forward. So as we read these verses today, I'm gonna, we're only going to cover just a handful of verses. Um, keep in mind that everything we've studied so far in those first five chapters, they've been building upon itself, okay? So everything that Craig talked about the last two weeks and then things we've talked about even going back a couple of months ago, They've, they're building a foundation to lay as we come into chapter 6 today to set up moving into looking at the process of sanctification in the life of a believer. So Romans 6, I'm going to start verse 1. You can read along with me. Uh, and again, just as a reminder, that's kind of if you want to break down in terms of doctrine what the chapters look like 
sometimes it helps me to have a mental picture. Okay, one through five, salvation, justification, uh, and six through the rest, we're going to look at sanctification. A lot of other things, but sanctification especially today. So Romans 6, um, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So there's two main themes we see in, in this passage, really throughout the chapter of chapter 6. And those two themes are life and death, both from a physical standpoint and also from a, uh, a spiritual viewpoint. And we'll kind of lay that out for you as we go this morning. And if you look at this passage in particular, it's interesting because, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, you might have a slightly different version, but it's, it's particularly interesting because four of the first five sentences are questions. So if you were going to start a chapter or you were going to start a, a shift in the thinking, it's interesting to me that Paul would choose to start four of the five questions. And the questions are rhetorical in nature. The questions are to raise awareness of some issues, but it's still an interesting point. And if you go back specifically and look at just the first two verses, first question, what shall we say then? And that's alluding back to what we've all talked about in chapters 1 through 5. Given all of 1 through 5, what shall we say then? Okay. And then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's the only statement he makes in the first five sentences. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So a couple of things. Number one, we're, we're left to assume that this inaccurate line of thinking was something prevalent in the church in Rome. Otherwise, why would Paul take so much time to address it? And that thinking, that belief would be something along the lines of, if I continue to sin, then God continues to get glory. And so therefore, the more I sin, the more glory God gets. That line of thinking seems crazy. It seems wild. But it evidently was a, and I think there are, there are still pockets today in our culture that believe that. I can sin God's grace and his Mercy has covered it. So the more I sin, it just, it just shows the love of God more. That's a very flawed, inaccurate way of thinking according to God's word. The thinking was the more sin, the more grace, and so the more God's glorified. And Paul was ready immediately to kind of shut that down, that kind of thinking, that kind of belief down, right from the get-go here in chapter 6. And I think as we see many times with Paul, we know Paul was was a very educated man. Paul was, um, he calls himself Jew of the Jews. I mean, he, he's, he's sharp. Intellectually, he's, he's sharp. And I think one thing he did is, and we see this not just in Romans, but in other books that he wrote, is he would prepare in advance for the confrontations or the kind of kickback that he would get from the teaching of the word. And so in this case, I think he is heading off a confrontation before the confrontation even formally presents itself to him. And so he's heading off this, this false teaching by saying, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's really getting at the heart of 
what many of the, his audience and maybe even many in our culture still believe. So if we sin and God's grace covers it, the more I sin, the more God's grace, the better we are. You can see how you can draw that conclusion. Although it's completely inaccurate uh, and really, really bad theology. To understand a little bit Paul's question there, I want to clarify something. That phrase, to continue, are to we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Important to understand, to continue was a phrase in the original language that would have meant habitual persistence in sin. It would have been an intentional, willful pattern of sin that characterized the person's lifestyle. It is not, that phrase that Paul used, a simple act of sin, a simple moment of disobedience. Because guess what? Everybody in this room has that. Everybody in the world has that. Every Christian in the world still has living in the flesh while we're on this earth, and therefore we know that our sin nature will be part of us until we are reunited with Christ and we take on the glorified nature. So he's not saying, are we to continue in sin, meaning you should never, ever, ever sin. You should have the perfect life. You should be the perfect Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, is, is it a pattern? Is it habitual, persistence, intentional act of the will that people know you by this lifestyle, whatever that might be? That's what he's talking about. And we need to understand that because if you don't understand that question, then the rest of the chapter can be taken out of context, okay? Because you can think, wait a minute, I I'm a believer and I know that I've got sin in my life, so what am I going to do? And it can lead to a really a lot of crazy questions coming into your mind. So you have to understand what he's saying there, first of all. And then the language he uses in the next verse is also very important. It's a very intense language. When he answers his own question, he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, By no means. In most translations, there's an exclamation point. By no means. In the original language, that would have meant, May it never be. It was one of the strongest possible responses Paul could have offered to show his opposition to that line of, Well, if I sin, there's more grace and more glory for God. And Paul says, May it never be. By no means. And he says that, and then he follows it up with, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And you might be thinking, wait a minute, I didn't die to sin. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't die to sin. And and you're right, we're living, we haven't died to sin. But guess who did die to sin? Jesus. And Jesus is, not only did he die in your place and my place, he died as our substitute but he died uh, as our, to take the penalty and take our place, the, the, the death that we should have died. And it's through Jesus that we also have died to sin. So that's why Paul says, how can we, who through Jesus died to sin, still live in it? And Paul's asking these believers, if you've died to sin through Jesus and you claim his name, how in the world do you still live in it? It makes no sense. You died to sin through Christ, but you want to turn around and still live in the very thing that carried the penalty that resulted in Christ's death. A lot of times we don't take sin seriously enough. I know I've been accused of maybe taking sin too seriously and harping on it too much. But I think when we think about the penalty of sin caused our Savior to be put to death, it's a really, really big deal. And yet we play with sin 
like it's nothing. Like, oh, it's not a big deal. I can do this. It's not a big deal. It's not going to harm anybody. Nobody's going to know. It carried the penalty of death of the only perfect man to ever live, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Let me, let me give you an illustration of Paul's point here. I was trying to think of an illustration. Um, my family of four, we went to the beach uh, a couple weeks ago. I guess it was week before last. And um, we go with my uh, brother's family, uh, family of three, and my mom. So there's seven or eight of us that we go. And uh, this past uh, this past uh, week or the week before last, I guess, we went down to uh, Oak Island, and we were down on the beach there. And this is kind of our one typical, like, vacation a year. Uh, it's pretty much the only time during the year that we get away together uh, for a vacation. And as we typically have done the last, I don't know, however many years we've been going, we kind of pick a day and we go out to the beach to take for the in- intentional sole purpose of taking pictures on the beach, right? You got to do that. You got to have that for social media. You got to have that for all your, to make your family look awesome. And my family does look awesome, but I'm just saying it, everybody does that. Um, but on this past trip, so we, we decided uh, what, whatever day we were going to do it. And so we said, okay, everybody have your stuff done so you can come in. We were staying in a condo. Come in, get a shower, get cleaned up, brush your teeth, whatever, put on some decent clothes. Mainly I'm talking to my kids because they just, you know, they don't ever want to get dressed. And, uh, and we're going to go and look decent for some family pictures. And so we decided we were going to do that. Everybody came back. They got their showers, got all cleaned up. Everybody's looking pretty good. Um, you know, this is the part of the trip that my kids hate the most because they just think it's a waste of time. I hope one day they'll look back and not think that but anyway so anyway we're all showered and we're we're cleaned up everybody looks good and we got in our cars and we drove just a little ways down from where we were staying to if you're familiar with oak island there's there's plenty of places that are like this but there's a there's an inlet and when the tide goes out you're there's a part of the beach there that is you can go out on the beach and you're fully surrounded by water the tide's out and so on every side you're surrounded by water, obviously water that you can walk in, swim in. It's not deep water because the tide's out. And it was just, you know, you got the sand dunes on one side. you got the, the, the beach. you got the ocean in the background. Just perfect spot. It's where we're going to take our pictures. It was awesome. Um, but the problem was to get to that spot where we wanted to take the pictures, we had to walk on a very kind of long, narrow, skinny, skinny uh, path of sand along the shore. So it was, it was so skinny that you have the, the ocean or the inlet breaking right here, and on the other side, you've got the sand dunes. And so you've got, it's probably about the size of this aisle, probably maybe a little bit narrower. And, and so we literally had to walk on the shoreline down around where the, the land ended, around the dunes, uh, to get to the spot where we're going. And we're, we're walking single file. So you can imagine my family of eight, like, do, 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 just walking down the aisle there. And um, so we wanted to get out there, and uh, we got about, I don't know, um, probably not even halfway down there, and I, and I look up, and I was two or three people behind where my son, my nine-year-old son Jude was, and I look up, and my son Jude, uh, who is still, and he's in really nice clothes, he's got on his really nice tennis shoes, I don't know why he wore those to the beach, and I see him creeping down close to the water like this, and he's leaning over the water, and I'm like, what in the world is that kid doing? And I'm like, I guess he was looking for fish, or I don't know what he was doing. But before I could say anything, before I could say, Jude, please back up, y'all know what happened. He, he's right here, and you see him kind of stumble, and he falls in. And I'm like, okay. We hadn't even made it to the, to the place we're taking the pictures. And he falls in, not just one feet, but both feet, with both shoes still on, 
fully immersed under the water. Now, to his credit, he did manage to stay on his feet. He avoided getting all of his clothes drenched, so he would have totally ruined the McElworth family pictures. Um, but he, he, he got it. I mean, he was up to his ankles, and his, his high-top shoes were completely submerged. I'm like, oh, my gosh, dude. And I was just, I was so frustrated. I don't know. I don't remember what I said. But I remember in my mind thinking as we continued the walk, as I saw him walking in his shoes that were sloshing water, son, why in the world would you have gone through all of the trouble of that last hour and a half, getting a shower, brushing your teeth, combing your hair, putting on nice clothes, all of things which he incredibly hates, to arrive at the actual place to take the actual pictures and then mess around and fall in the water. See, that's, that's what Paul is saying here in these verses in chapter 6 of Romans. He's saying to the believers, you've put your faith in Jesus. He's died in your place to take the penalty for your sin. He has defeated sin and death. He's totally cleansed you from unrighteousness through his blood. He's given you new life in the Holy Spirit. So how in the world could you possibly want to live in the filth and the guilt of sin? See, Jude had taken great measures, along with a ton of encouragement from his mom and dad, to get cleaned up, to get dressed up, and get ready for the pictures. And he complained the whole time, and he eventually did those things. So why in the world, after all of that, would he risk going down there, getting that close to the water, and risk not only ruining his shoes and all his clothes, all that stuff, but also ruining the reason and the purpose we were there? The McElworth family picture. I'm like, this is unbelievable. And it, just, it was just striking to me that he did all that work and he put in all those, those measures and yet he was still living basically once he fell into the water in the filth and the, and the guilt of, of, of sin, but it was the filth and the guilt of the inlet as it washed in and he becomes completely covered in it. Now I want you to see here that Paul builds on this in uh, verses 3 and 4. And I want you to see what he does here. Look at, look at verse 3. He says, uh, oh, yeah, I want to show you this before I forget. There's our picture. I'm sorry. I wanted to include that because I'm proud of my family. But the one in the front, if you don't know Jude, uh, we don't have shoes on there. Well, his shoes were sitting off in the back. They were covered in sand and wet. Anyway, all right, verse 3. Uh, do, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now, I admit when you first read this, it sounds like we're talking about, or Paul's talking about water baptism as an example to build upon the truth that he's already laid out, that believers have died to sin. You have new life in Jesus. But I love the way that uh, commentator J. Vernon McGee references verses 3 and 4. He says, if you find water in this verse or in these verses, you have missed the meaning. And here's, here's what we're going to say here. Water baptism is extremely important. We believe it to be an ordinance that is ordained and directed by God's word for all believers in Jesus. We know one of the, uh, we talk about the Great Commission, and, and, that, and the Great Commission is our commission. And one important aspect of the Great Commission is baptism. You're probably familiar with this. Jesus said, he says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what he commands. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, 
And here's the part where he includes baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So in that hugely crucial part of Scripture that we have there is the Great Commission and that we base everything we do in life, part of that is baptism. So it's very, very crucially important. We also know that Jesus himself, despite being completely sinless, was baptized. In Matthew 3, it records, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. This is John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. And and John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So without a doubt, we believe the Bible teaches that water baptism is an outward symbol to the church and to all of the world of an internal decision of the heart to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Just a few weeks ago here at Connect Church, we had an incredible celebration, the honor and celebration as we came together to honor seven believers that were following in Christ's example in believers' baptism. I mean, this place was jam full. We, could, we even brought in seats to make sure we had enough seats. It was, so, it was awesome to celebrate those seven following the Lord in, in baptism. However joyous that is, and we're so thankful for that, that's such a huge moment in the life of a believer, that's not what Paul is alluding to here in Romans chapter 6. Rather, the original word used here that Paul's referring to, referring to is the word baptizo. And I want to give you the definition as laid out by Kenneth Vest. And this is what he says when he's talking about the word baptizo when it refers to our identification with Christ, not necessarily the water portion of baptism. He says that it's the introduction or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into union with something else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. So it's a long way of saying that baptizo is when the identification of a previous life now changes into the identification of something new. I used to identify with this. Now I want to make it clear that I'm identifying with this. And in this case, we're talking about identification with the Lord Jesus and his newness of life. Pastor John MacArthur, he noted with these verses, he says, Paul is simply using the physical analogy of water baptism to teach the spiritual reality of the believer's union with Christ, the identification with Christ. So Paul was reminding the, the believers of what baptism represents, that when a person is baptized, they go down and, and they're buried into the water, representing Jesus' death and burial. Our physical bodies are buried into the water. And then if you read, why do we do that? Look at the last part of verse 4 that I just read. We do that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, You're raised from the water. By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
In other words, Paul is saying we must identify with Jesus in his death to sin so that we also can identify with Jesus in his resurrection power to the newness of life. Dead to sin, raised to new life in Christ. And you know what? That ties directly back to the question Paul asked in verse 2. That rhetorical yet incredibly intense question is how can we who died to sin still live in it? And I'm going to give you the answer to that question. You can't. The answer is a true believer not only will not, but they cannot live continuously in sin because they have been raised to walk in the newness of life offered through God's grace by Jesus' death to pay their penalty for sin and to put sin to death. If you think about death and life as it relates to darkness and light, death is where life doesn't exist. Death is the absence of life, like darkness is the absence of light. And I know that sounds like some kind of uh, SAT question or whatever, but think about that. Death is the absence of life, like darkness is the absence of light. And so as soon as a glimmer of light enters into a dark room, if we turned off all the lights in this room, and I pulled out my cell phone, it's got a little light on it, and I turned it on, then that darkness, which would, would, I've been in here when there's no lights, there's no windows, it's dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But as soon as I turn on my cell phone, that darkness doesn't exist. Now it's still darker, but the darkness in total does no longer exist because there's just a tiny glimpse, there's a tiny light that is now pervading the darkness, causing the darkness to go away and causing light to come in. The same is true for our lives as believers when we ask the Lord Jesus to come into our lives. So without Jesus, if you've not ever had a moment in time where you have submitted your will to his, and you know what, I bow my heart, my head, my mind before you, and I ask you to forgive me of my sin, I want to repent of my sin, I want to turn. If you've never had that moment, your life, I can guarantee you, is 100% utter darkness and death. That's not my words, that's the word of the Bible. Okay, so that's what happens. But when you come to know Christ, when you first accept him into your life and into your heart and into your mind, then that's like turning on the flashlight. Darkness is gone. Darkness cannot exist. But the problem is a lot of us still live our Christian lives with just a cell phone flashlight. And so what that means, imagine if I have my cell phone flashlight, that corner and that corner and that corner and that corner and probably over there, it's all going to be dark. It's only I can, I can only shine that light one place, right? Because my light's so small, I can't really get it to all the corners. So there's still some pockets of darkness in this room. There's still some pockets of darkness in our lives. And it's because we're living our lives with a flashlight that exists to, in other words, get rid of the darkness. But then we're, we're, we're frustrated. We're like, why am I still not experiencing spiritual victory? Why am I still not experiencing knowing the word well you're trying to live the spiritual life on a, on a flashlight in a dark room and it's a, and it becomes very very tough i would just tell you if you're here this morning you've called on the name of jesus to be your savior you've repented of your sin then let me give you full assurance that you belong to the lord because of the promises found in his word that's it 
end of story, if you've submitted your will, you've asked for forgiveness, you've asked him to come into your life, and you, you're, you've turned to him, then your eternity is secure, okay? I don't care how big your, your light might be right now. Your eternity is secure. But the problem is, like I said, that we don't, we, we stop with that. We stop with the first five verses of Romans where it's talking about justification and salvation, and we never really get to the point of sanctification where we grow. And so what I would issue to you guys this morning, our challenge really from this point forward is to grow. Let the light of Christ expand and explode in our lives. Yes, if I had to ask each of you one-on-one, just privately, I'd be willing to bet this morning most of you would say, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus. I am a Christian. I have the light of Christ in my life. But what we try to do is we try to keep that light under control. We like to keep that light. I only want to shine it over here on this corner because this part of my life over there, I got that part together. So I want to make sure you see that. But over here behind me where you can't see, where the light's not, I got a lot of sin hidden. I got a lot of broken relationships hidden. I got a lot of nasty stuff stored over there. But yes, I'm walking with Christ. And look over here, I read my Bible today. I went to church today. And you're showing, even in your own mind, you're showing yourself, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Meanwhile, we've got this little bitty light in this big room. There's a lot of areas that where darkness still exists. And so there, there is light in your life, and, and darkness does not exist. But what I'm telling you is there's so much more room to let that light multiply to reach every deep and dark corner of your life. That means every word, every thought, every relationship, every environment, every prayer, every action, every decision. And we're going to move more into this next week and, and we get deeper in chapter 6 and we're going to really hit home on some, the process of sanctification in the life of a believer. But it, it, this morning, if you were just to stop right now and you were to take inventory of your own life today, just your own life, how would you rate the radiance of Christ in your life right this moment on a scale of 1 to 10? Obviously 10 being, hey, I got, the sun, I got the sunlight sitting in this room. There's not a single pocket in this room where you can find that I'm not exposed. So 10, and I bet none of us are probably a 10. I know that I'm not. But how is the radiance of Christ, how is that light shining in your life right now? I'd be willing to bet that a lot of us subconsciously, or maybe consciously, I hope not, but I think a lot of times subconsciously, we limit the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we do that in and we do that in certain relationships, and we do that in certain environments. Uh, Paul in First Thessalonians, he writes something as about as straightforward as you can get. It's the entire verse, First Thessalonians five nineteen. Do not quench the spirit. See, the Spirit of God is where the power of God can be found. And I would submit to you guys today, have you ever thought that maybe you or maybe I are not, we're not experiencing enough spiritual victories in our life because in one way or another we're doing what Paul said there not to do. We're quenching the Spirit through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions, through our habits, through our relationships, through our hobbies, through our jobs. I don't know, whatever it can be. It can be a thousand things. But a lot of times we don't experience spiritual victory 
And I, I'm not talking about victory like I won the lottery. That's a, that's a material, physical thing that is, is totally sizable. I'm talking about spiritual victories, victories that last for eternity. Maybe you're not experiencing that because somewhere there's a dark corner. And, yeah, you've got a lot of light in these areas. They look good, but you know somewhere behind you, somewhere to the left or somewhere to the right, somewhere in a relationship, somewhere there's some darkness lingering. And so my challenge to you guys today is to live new lives that we have in Christ that are made possible through his death and resurrection. If you think about what Paul's saying, this is what he's saying in Romans 6, is the same power that raised Jesus from death to life. Has anybody in here ever seen someone raised from the dead? From dead as a doornail, not moving, not breathing, no heartbeat, no oxygen, nothing, to automatically living? I've never seen that. But that same power that has raised someone, in this case Jesus, from death to life, and that same power that defeated sin and death because of that resurrection, what Paul is saying is that same power is present in your lives right now because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. I would challenge you this morning, and I'm speaking to myself more than anybody in this room, I can guarantee it, is we need to stop living our our lives, our, our Christian lives with a cell phone flashlight. Honestly, I think that we walk through day to day, we go to work, we go to our, we go to home, we go to our homes, we go to our neighborhoods, we, we do whatever. And yeah, we, we, we have a lot of peace because Jesus has given that. There's darkness that doesn't exist. But ultimately, we're trying to live with the light of a cell phone. And ultimately, that light is not going very far because somewhere, somehow, we're quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. So why don't we let it be our goal, and this is what we'll be looking at as we continue in this next week, for our lives to scream, to shout, to just overflow with the radiance of Christ in every circumstance. It's not how, the Bible never says like, you know, let your light shine so that it's as small as you can see to to get by. It says let your light shine so that it may be seen by all. And I know for me, I got some pretty nasty pockets sometimes. And I would pray that those things would be exposed. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. And I would pray, Lord, that as I'm praying to and with a room full of probably mostly believers, that your light that shines in us would shine so incredibly bright and so incredibly radiant that people could not help but get around us and to feel the warmth of that light, to be drawn in by the light of your presence, the light of your spirit. And yes, sometimes that involves us sharing our our testimony or talking about the Bible, having spiritual conversations. Sometimes that involves behavior and decisions that would reflect your glory. It looks different in every situation. But I just pray that when people would be around us, they wouldn't be wondering what our lives are about or who we serve. 
that it would be so obvious that the light would be blinding. It would be like stepping out into the noonday sun, no hat, no sunglasses, and just being overwhelmed with the light of your presence. And Lord, I pray as we, we continue in this series for the next few weeks, especially in Romans 6, that we would continue in that newness of life. Craig did such a great job, Lord, the last two weeks talking about the newness of life that we've been raised to. And now Paul goes into talking about how we are to walk in that newness of life. It's not just we're raised to newness of life and that's the end of the story. Congratulations. Is that we are to be sanctified. We are to be set apart to be different than the world. And I pray that you would work in us so that your light may expand and explode all over the place, Lord, that people would know you because of us, that we would share you, that we couldn't help but share you. I pray, Lord, that your your word, as you tell us, you promise us that it will not return void. And I pray this morning that would be the promise we claim in our lives and in the life of this church, that your word would not return void. Lord, may your name be worshipped as we we close this service in song. May your name be glorified. And it's in that name we pray. Amen.